So one of the reasons we do this, oh, yes. Uh, well, I don't know if I can rock that. All right. So one of the reasons we do this as a community is that we are all one family, right? When Jesus created the church, he wasn't just created a nonprofit that would be in Pacific Grove, California. He was trying to create a family, right, from birth all the way to death, and even a family that exists beyond death in the presence of God. So super grateful to be here uh, with you guys, have you here with us. Now, if you're a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, you're very ready. Uh, Miss Alicia's back there, Belinda's back there, lots of folks. It's going to be epic. Super fun. Now, while they're going and we have a second, I want you to think about and turn to the person next to you the hottest experience you ever had. Like, temperature hot. Like the... Sorry. I could have said that better. Okay. The, like, warmest temperature environment you were ever in. Thank you. You guys made that so awkward. All right, if you haven't switched, make sure to switch. All right, even though you're like mid-sentence, I'm going to totally interrupt. All right. Shout out the hottest temperature you were in. 120, 112. 118, can anyone top that? 120, going, going. Okay, but the question is, 120, is that dry heat? Yeah, oh, that doesn't even count, yeah. All right, so I, I share this because this week, uh, I, remember, I remembered a time I spent in Israel. And for four days of this trip, I was in the, the desert of Israel, and we were hiking we got to follow a rabbi for these four, four days, and the rabbi would teach us as we walked. This is uh, just a, one of the pictures of what it looked like. It was this really cool space. It's these like immense rocks, this really hot space. I think it was 112, so not quite 120, but legit. And I was out there all day walking. Here's another picture, just kind of gives you another sense. So this rock, the rabbi started walking, and we were following this rabbi, and we went around this rock once, and then twice, and then three times, and then the more impatient among us, it wasn't me, said, are we walking in circles? And in true rabbinic fashion, the rabbi turns around and says, as Israel left Egypt and went into the wilderness, were they wandering or were they following? And it was this cool moment of like, oh, I guess I had always thought of them as sort of like wandering. But really, like what we realize, right, as we are leaving uh, 
actual Egypt in the book of Exodus, they follow right, a cloud at night, fire at night, cloud during the day. Now, Israel is following. And it's with this in mind that they are walking through this super hot desert that we enter the first story, actually, about the Israelites post-Red Sea as they actually follow God into the desert. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that this first story in Exodus 15 is about water. If you've ever been in the hot desert, you know water is something you literally cannot do without. The text says they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Right, so three days have passed since the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. So maybe a total of six since they left Egypt. So six days. And now the harsh realities of desert life are starting to kind of sink in. They're like, this was awesome until we had no water on day six and we're in the desert. They're thirsty. They're getting dehydrated. And then, amen, hallelujah, they to this, come to this place called Mara. And behold, right, they find some water, and they're ready to drink and fill up all their water bottles and dunk their heads. They're so excited. Then they find the water is bitter, Exodus 15, 23. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Now, this isn't like snobbery. Right, if you've traveled internationally, you know, like, sometimes you drink water and you get really sick. So somehow, my children, we, when we moved to Pacific Grove, we got, like, a water purifier into our fridge. And now they literally will not drink tap water. Like, you hand them tap water, they're like, ew. So it's not that. Right? This is not water snobbery. This water is bitter. And what happens is the Israelites become bitter too. They get mad at Moses, verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Right? They start complaining and gossiping about him. And Moses gets the message. Right? He does what he does best. He turns back to God. The text says he cries out to God in 1525. And God, right, he's done this before. He's performed miracles involving water twice before now, right, at the Red Sea, and he turns the Nile into blood. The text says the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And then having done this, God says something super important. He says this, if you will diligently Listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in His eyes and give ear to His commands and keep all His statues. I will put none of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians, right, the plagues, for I am the Lord, your healer. Now, if we rewind a bit, what's clear is that God has actually created an object lesson for the Israelites as their sort of first story or following in the desert. You run into an obstacle. You have a need, right? You're thirsty in the desert. And the question is, what do you do? 
Right? Do you grumble? Do you complain? Do you gossip? Do you just like, oh my gosh, what do you do? Right? Whose voice do you listen to? Right? They're complaining. They're grumbling to one another. They're like, oh my gosh, whose voice do they listen to? And God is saying in this moment, when that time comes, listen to my voice. I will be the one who provides for you in your time of need. Right? God is telling the people to listen carefully to his voice. And his instructions, why? They will bring sweetness to the bitterness. They will bring satisfaction to the people's thirst. I also think it's important to highlight here, this is the first time in the Bible that God is called a healer. Now, we read about the ministry of Jesus, and we're like, every other page, Jesus is healing people, and we just think, that's just obvious. That's everywhere. God heals. But it starts here. I don't think it's coincidental. Right? Israel has just come out of generations of abusive slavery. They've been maltreated. They've been literally beaten. Their experience in Egypt has malformed them. Right? They're formed in the image of a slave, in the image of Pharaoh's slave. Right? And God wants to bring them into the desert to teach them and to heal them. And then after three days in the wild desert heat, right, having God satisfy their thirst, it says this in verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Right, so having received this lesson of dependence on God, learning to listen to his voice, Knowing that that's where sweetness and thirst is satisfied, God leads the people by cloud and fire to abundant water and nourishment at Elam, which is translated, you know, Palm Springs, literally. <laughs> now, the numbers 12 and 70 should probably be understood as numbers of completion. Right? The Israelites have plenty of springs for water, perhaps one for each of the 12 tribes. And they have palm trees there for shade during the hot part of the day. Right? Elam is in many ways a reversal of the desert environment, a foretaste of what it's like when the people of Israel listen to God's voice and they obey his statutes. This is actually the first story of the Israelites in the desert. It's the first thing that God teaches them about what it means to be like him and be in his kingdom. The second story, I'll let you guess. What is it about? First is about water. What's the second one about? Food. You've read this before. <laughs> the text says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. I realize in English, Sin means something. That's not what it means right here. It's not like the wilderness of bad behavior or whatever. Aaron gave a sermon on it last week. That's not what he was talking about. Just, that's just its name. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what did they do? They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died 
by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get real for a second. Who here has ever been hangry? Okay, at least we have an honest crowd. So in our family, hangry happens occasionally, all the time. Thank you. That was my wife. <laughs> we might struggle a little bit about this. And so sometimes when someone gets hangry, you're literally like, just eat this. You are no longer thinking straight, right? Hangry is a combination, if you're not familiar, with hungry and angry. Eat some food, and then this, like, previously irrational person now is, like, able, you're able to talk with them. You sort of get this feeling as you're reading this story. It's like, oh, these people are seriously hangry. Really, Moses? Did you take everyone to starve them? Like you went through all that just to starve them? Like Moses is some like horrible, evil dictator, like, you know, in the background. I was like, yeah, no. It's still pretty amazing though, isn't it? How quickly the Israelites forget their experience in Egypt. They get hangry and quickly, right, they start imagining this scenario where they have these huge meat pots and like, tons of food. But as slaves, they literally did not have the leisure to sit by meat pots and eat bread like this. They never really ate to the point of satiety, right? Notice the text says, it's really interesting, the Israelites say they sat by pots, and they're likely right. They sat beside the meat pots, tending them for the overseers, They're masters. The slaves ate bread or roasted grain, not meat. And yet, despite their selective memory and consistent grumbling, God provides bread for them. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my ways, my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, I just want us to remember, like sometimes if you grow up in the church, you think, oh yeah, manna, okay, yeah, got it, you know. Recontextualize a second. The people are grumbling. They're complaining. They're literally accusing God and Moses of taking them out there to die. They have a revisionist history. And in the midst of this, what does God do? In his grace, he provides bread from heaven. It's this incredibly beautiful moment. It's also an opportunity for the Israelites to learn to listen to his voice. Right? He says... Hey guys, listen to me. I will turn right your bitterness sweet. Now they have an opportunity. Right? Because the bread from heaven is not simply just to satisfy their hunger. It will do that. But it's also a way to train them to undo the ways of slavery. I think sometimes we forget how we are shaped and formed in context. And we see this especially with manna 
like God's economy and food and provision of manna in the wilderness, contrasted to Egypt and its food system and the way it provided. I'll just kind of go through a couple contrasts, right? Israel's economy, like any large-scale agrarian, agrarian economy at that day, relied on slavery in order to produce the food they needed. In contrast, right, this manna economy actually creates breaks for every single worker. No slaves needed. Second, the Egyptian economy was all about creating excess for the rich and the powerful, and it led to a deficit for the poor, especially slaves. There's vast inequality. However, the manna food economy, as we'll see in a minute, is actually not about satisfying lavish wants. A person each day in the manna economy is given one omer of manna each day. No more. And now an omer, just in case you don't know these measuring styles, I mean, you probably do. Who knows these things? Anyway, right, so one omer equals 3.64 liters or about 12 of these. So that's a decent amount, right? Is that a cup? Maybe two cups. Six of these. I don't know. I'm not great at measuring. All right. A few of those. Okay. What the point is, is that food in the manna economy is given in proportion to need. You have a big family? Great. You get a little more. You have a small family? Great. You get a little less. Right? It's based on the people in the house. Third, manna cannot be stored except on the Sabbath. And this creates a complete contrast to Pharaoh's agrarian system. So the Hebrews lived in a town called Ramses, right? Now, there were vast storehouses there. Vast. It, it held like all the, the grain reserves of Egypt. They would basically bring them all there, right? So then the Israelites are sort of working in the shadow of these massive storage grain, grain supply houses, here, the Israelites, they get daily bread. Fourth, in Egypt, Pharaoh was the de facto owner of all the land and therefore all the food. Here, right, the Israelites are learning what does it look, look like to depend on God as their provider, not Pharaoh. As you see these different differences, right? The Israelites have been shaped in this economy in Egypt, and now God is trying to train them in His ways in the wilderness via food. And not only does He provide manna, He also provides quail. Verse 13, In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you can eat, as much as he can eat. You shall take, each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. 
All right, so there's a lot going on here, a few things. Right? The Israelites are hungry. What does God do? By his grace, in the midst of their grumbling, he provides not only manna, but also quail. Two, text says bread from heaven, but my, Josiah, my son, was watching Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs this weekend, and sort of there's this image of like sourdough raining down from heaven, right? And it's like, no, that's not what's going on here. It's actually interesting. Sometimes we think manna literally means bread, but that's actually not accurate. So the word manna is actually based on the Israelites' response when they see the stuff on the ground. They say, what's that? Food? That is, a, that is the definition of manna. It's literally taking the Hebrew and then putting the name of, what's that? And then they call it manna. The bread from heaven is, what's that? That God has given called manna. But they also get some pretty clear instructions, right? Previously, God told them to listen to his voice just as he has spoken, but surprise, surprise, right? Not everyone listens. Well, what if God forgets to bring the manna tomorrow? Well, what if I don't have food? So they just gather a little extra. And what happens, right? Worms and stinky stuff. Ugh. He also gives them instructions about resting on the seventh day. Verse 22. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. And then later, Moses explains to them, remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day, right? There's this invitation to rest, right? These are slaves. They've never been given an opportunity to rest. They couldn't even get a three-day, a three-day weekend, right? Remember Moses like, give us three days in the wilderness. He's like, no. They couldn't even get a three-day weekend before. They have no idea how to rest. So God builds into their rhythm of life the ability to rest. And what's interesting is on the seventh day, God doesn't even supply the food. You notice that? He doesn't just say to them, there's manna out there, but don't touch it. He just doesn't even supply the food. Because he's trying to teach them, hey guys, when you go out there, it's not going to be there. Right? He invites them to rest with him. Now, if you were with us at the beginning of the year, right, we started in Genesis 1, we're in Exodus 15 now. Genesis 1 in creation, right, on the sixth day, God provides food for the human creatures, and then he rests. But if you also remember, Genesis 1 is written in contrast to other Babylonian creation myths. And this is kind of important, and it sort of creates a parallel between what's happening now and Genesis 1. You see, the Babylonian epic of creation involves this great war among the gods. And the loser gods, they have to build this temple. And the, the victorious gods realize, ah, we have this awesome temple. This is so cool. There's food. But they realize it's a lot of work to maintain this temple. So they think, you know what? This is cutting into our leisure. You know what we're going to do? Let's make humans. 
they will function as our food providers and slaves in the temple. That is the dominant creation myth when Genesis 1 is written. Genesis 1, we see some differences. God does not create humans to be his slaves. He creates food for the humans. The humans aren't creating it for him. And then what does he do? He invites them right after that to rest with him, to join him in his leisure. That's the seventh day. And when we read Exodus 16, we start to see some similarities. Israel has just been freed from what? Slavery. Where they never got a break, they never got to rest. They were providing food for the Egyptians. And now God is inviting them. Providing food for them and then inviting them to rest with him. He's teaching the people that they're not slaves. They're meant to live in relationship with him. Right? And he is trying to teach them that he is their healer. He is their provider. He is the one who gives them rest. And this isn't meant to be just something that's like, oh, that's what that generation needed to learn. There's this fascinating line. This is Exodus 16, 32. God tells Moses to save a daily serving of manna in a jar for future generations to remember. The text says, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. God's like, save it in the jar so that every generation that sees this jar will remember that I am the provider for Israel. I am the healer of Israel. I am the one who gives Israel rest. Don't forget it. Now the question is, right, as we look at this text, how does it then translate into our life? Right? We don't live in a desert. Like the last time it got 75 in PG, I had literally people like sweltering and like needing balance. They're like, oh my gosh, it's so hot. It's like it's unbelievable. But anyway. Right, we cannot handle heat. Let's just acknowledge it, admit it, and move on. Okay. Right, so then how do we take desert wanderings in a non-desert location and apply it to our life? This is kind of interesting. When we fast forward to the New Testament, there's this interesting connection between wilderness or desert and the ministry of Jesus. If you read the gospel, you'll notice that Jesus repeatedly, and the text says something like he goes to this desolate place. One example, Mark 1.35. It says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Desolate place is the equivalent of desert. Wilderness. He leaves the everyday rhythms of life to go to the desert. Matthew 14, 13. It says again, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Same word desert. He's withdrawing from communities, withdrawing from everyday rhythms to go to the desert. And this isn't just something Jesus does. He tells the disciples to do it as well. Mark 6, 31. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and 
rest a while. And I think this means, in the very least, if we are to model our life after the ministry and practice of Jesus, we should consider what it looks like for us to leave the normal patterns of everyday life to go to the desert, to go to the desolate place, to have patterns of withdrawing and returning to everyday life, just like Jesus told the disciples to do. And I think, honestly, if we flip back now to Exodus 15 and 16, we see some clues to why we should do this. First, when we withdraw, we learn that in the wilderness, we remember in the wilderness that God is our provider. Right In Exodus 15 and 16, the Israelites need water, they need food, right? and God provides for them in His grace, in the midst of their grumbling. When the authors of the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, when they look back on the 40 years of time in the desert, this is what they say. In the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord, your God, carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went till you came to this place. When they look out over this time in the wilderness, what they see, the dominant image is of the father picking up his tired son and carrying him through the desert. I think Deuteronomy, these desert wanderings, these desert followings, are supposed to remind us, right, that God is our provider. And one of the reasons we have these patterns of withdrawing and returning to everyday life is to remember that God provides for us. Right? It's not a coincidence when you get to John 6 and the people are hungry, right? They say, what do we do for food? The disciples are like, well, buy it here, buy it here. And Jesus says what? I am the bread of life. And when we get to John 7, right, he says this, if anyone is thirsty, right, come to me. Hunger and thirst. And we need patterns of withdrawing into the desolate place to remind ourselves, to be reminded by God that he is the one who provides for us. Second, in the wilderness we remember that God is our healer. In Exodus 15, right, it's the first time in the entire Bible that God is said to be a healer. Israel has just come out of centuries of abuse under Pharaoh. This has really messed them up as a people. But how could it not on some level? I mean, generation upon generation of people having their identity shaped by someone who did not care about them ever. They were driven and driven And Yahweh invites his people into the wilderness. And as a part of the process, he hopes to bring them healing. And when you fast forward to the New Testament, what you see constantly is people are leaving their patterns of everyday life to what? Go and find Jesus wherever he is in order to be healed. And sometimes we need to withdraw from the everyday patterns of life into the desolate place to be with Jesus in order to remember that he is the one who heals us. 
Third, in the wilderness, remember that God is the giver of rest. Right? In Egypt, they were constantly working. They were slaves. Right? They couldn't even get a three-day weekend away. But now in the wilderness, right, God is trying to help the Israelites remember that he is the God who gives them rest. Right? In the Gospels, Jesus does this. He invites the disciples to do this. He says to the disciples, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and what? I will give you rest. When we adopt patterns of withdrawing into the presence of Jesus, out of everyday life, into that desolate place, we remember that God is the one who gives us rest. And the cool thing about this, right, is you don't actually need to move to the Mojave Desert or whatever in order to learn some of these lessons. Awesome! Like, you don't need to move. You can do it here. But this is the thing. We often don't. We often don't. God wants to teach us that he is, his, he is our provider. That he has what we need and yet so often we lean into self-reliance. We lean into self-provision because trusting that God will provide for us is scary. The problem is when we don't learn that God provides for us, the fruit of that is we become a stingy and ungenerous people. Because we're not remembering that God provides for us. We don't need to hoard. Whether it's manna or money or whatever. When we don't take these patterns of withdrawing and grounding ourselves that God is our healer, we end up carrying the same broken patterns of relationship into the church. And the fruit of this is we have all these conflicts that come up. Because we're so focused on our own preferences, we're so focused on defending our own territory, we, it leads to conflict. It also leads to a profound loneliness in the church. Because we don't know how to be together. Because rather than getting healing in the presence of Jesus, we settle for the same broken patterns that we were taught in our family systems and all kind of in our culture. God wants to teach us rest. But when we don't have these patterns of withdrawing into the desolate place, we become a people that are driven by anxiety. We become a people that cannot slow down. We become a people that cannot be present to each other. We become a people that are distracting ourselves at every level. And I think the worst fruit of this is we become a people whose relationship with God is superficial and shallow. God wants to provide for us. He wants us to trust him. He wants to heal us. He wants to give us rest. And I think we want these things too. What's so amazing 
about Exodus 15 and 16, in my opinion. In the midst of Israel's, like, reconstructionist imagination about, you know, loving, oh, Egypt was so great. In the midst of that, in the midst of complaining and, like, just basically throwing Moses under the bus and God as a result, in the midst of all of that, God is still so gracious to his people. He gives them water to satisfy their thirst. He gives them bread and quail in order to satisfy their hunger. And I guess I just wonder this morning, what are you hungering and thirsting for as you come into this place? What are you longing for? What does it look like for God to be with you in that space? Do you know? The text says that God wants to speak to his people and he invites his people to listen. Do you have a sense this morning, right, as you take a little break from your everyday life and come in here into this wilderness space? Do you have a sense of what God is saying to you? We don't come here just to go through the rhythm. We come here to listen to the speaking voice of God. As I went through the stories in this text, in this sermon, was there something that felt like God was like underlining for you? Hey, you, look here. Something that kind of awoke in you maybe. Something you're like, I don't want to pay attention to that. Skip. Do you have a sense of what that was? Was it when maybe I talked about how God provides for us? Was it when I talked maybe about this idea that God wants to heal these broken patterns in our life? Maybe it was when I was talking about God wants to give you rest, or maybe it was just this whole frame of like, whoa, God wants me to withdraw from the patterns of everyday life just to be with him. Do you have a sense of how God is speaking and instructing you this morning? As we enter worship, I just, just want us to remember that God is here with us. Just as he was journeying with Israel in the desert, he is with us. Just as he provided for them, he wants to provide for us. He wants to heal us and give us rest. As we enter worship and the worship team comes back up here, I just want to invite us to listen. What is God saying to you? What is his invitation to you? How is he guiding, directing, maybe convicting you this morning? God, we come into this space with our needs and our longings. And God, we thirst for many things, but I just ask Jesus in this moment that we would thirst for you. I ask God in this moment that we would find our rest in you. God, I ask that you would heal us, your broken people. God, I ask that you would rewire our minds and our bodies and our brains to trust you. You will never leave or forsake us. That like a father carrying his child through the desert, 
you carry us today. We are not alone. We are not alone in our loneliness. You are with us. We are not alone in our need. You are our provider. You are our father, our healer, and the one who wants to provide rest for our souls. Speak to us, Lord.